Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the world's most powerful, wearable health and fitness coach. Throughout the Giro Italia, Whoop is partnering with the EF Education First Easy Post Pro Cycling Team and Velon to give cycling fans a behind the scenes look of what riders' life heart rates are during the race and everything off the bike, including what recovery and sleep data look like over the course of a grand tour. Whoop isn't just for professionals though, whether you're an avid cyclist or just getting started, Whoop is there to help you understand your body better. It's not just another fitness tracker. It measures loads of metrics and vital signs, including heart rate variability, resting heart rate, daily activity, and a full breakdown of your sleep. Whoop takes all that data and provides you with personalized recommendations and feedback so that you can accomplish your own goals from being more active to sleeping better. Know when you should go big and when you should go for a light spin with Whoop. And from my personal experience, the sleep tracker function for me is fantastic. I mean, when you're sleeping, you're sleeping. You don't really know what's going on. But in the morning, when you can go back and look at how much REM sleep, how much deep sleep, how much time you spent awake, and then get an overall recovery score from that, it can definitely set you on the right path during the day. And they just released their all-new 4.0. It's even smaller and smarter. Designed with biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. So go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and enter the code BOBBY, B-O-B-B-Y, all uppercase, at checkout to save 15% today. Well, Yenzi, know that many of our listeners were paying attention to this on a day-to-day basis, but kind of wanted to give a little bit of a recap to those that have been maybe living under a rock for the last three weeks, and now we have to find out something to do every day until the, the Tour de France comes around. But man, great race, interesting race, and what was your main takeaway from the Giro d'Italia 2022. Well, well, the first Aussie win. So we do throw another shrimp on the barbie for the first Australian ever to win the Giro d'Italia. I believe now there's only the Vuelta España left to be won. So the Aussies doing pretty well. But it was a long way to get there. So let's take it step by step. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Jai rode a perfect race. And Cadell Evans actually called him out by name on one of our previous podcasts saying that this is one of the guys that they're looking forward to being a future Grand Tour winner. Uh, He came close in 2020, losing it on the the final day to Teo Gaggenhart, but uh, definitely redeemed himself. There's no doubt. But yeah, that's skipping to the end of the book. Let's go back and maybe break it down, you know, week by week of overall impressions because after three weeks you know those things start to to blend together a little bit but maybe there are some little things you know week by week that uh that we want to remember and maybe have since forgotten but for me 
the first week, I mean, obviously with Matteo Vanderpool winning the first stage and taking pink, that was that was super exciting. Um, you know, Cav on stage three already breaking through. Um, Simon Yates crushing that first time trial really looked like he's he's here. Uh, Tom Demelin was another guy that you know got third in that that second uh, stage two time trial. But there was there was a lot going on, right? Like you don't win the, a grand three week grand tour in the first week, but you can definitely lose it. And and I have to say that that first week was maybe not the best um, indicator of what was going to happen. Well, when I saw Simon Yates, with all the respect, though, he's not known as the world's fastest time trialer. When I saw him winning the TT in a quite impressive style, I'm like, well, I guess that's it. That's the winner. He just has to hang on to it until he hits the mountains and he is going to win another stage, which he did. And in my eyes, I thought he is head and shoulders above everybody else. The favorite for the overall in this Giro Italia. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It was a little bit of a maybe a head fake of form that um, you know panned out a little bit later in the week. But obviously, the biggest highlight of that first week was Lopez. You know, this unknown Trek Segafredo rider. You know, finishing second to Leonard Kamna, who will come back to a very important part of the race in, in week number three, the penultimate stage. Uh, taking pink in his first Grand Tour and being able to defend it. Um, I mean, it's a big moment in anybody's career. Where do you think is the ceiling for, for Lopez here? Juan Pedro Lopez. Juan Pedro Lopez, I'm happy that you mentioned him, finished in the end 10th overall. He did win the white jersey, so he was quite strong, steady, and consistent. He did hang on to that jersey, I believe, the last days of his uh, pink jersey. It was more mind over matter. He was really going deep, deep, deep to make it happen day after day. But he gained confidence, and I believe, yes, he is a future at least top five, top six contender um, if he keeps working like the way he did uh, in this tour. He was definitely a very nice and good surprise. Yeah, I, I really didn't even know who he was. And that's what I'm starting to realize, Jenzi. The older we get, the less and less riders we know by name, right? Like it used to be like you pretty much knew anyone. Uh, you got to go and do your research on these guys nowadays because they're just coming out of the woodwork. But seeing you know, the sprint heavy uh, first couple stages there, you know, Cav winning a stage in a Grand Tour, DeMar, Arnold DeMar winning two stages in that first week. And I have to really, I mean, I'm super stoked about Cav winning and instantly people started talking about the Tour de France. And I just pray that something will happen there so that we can can see him in the Tour. But I really have to take my hats off to, to Francis de Joux. When we were racing Yenzi, Francis de Joux were not the most um, professional-looking team. They seemed like they were just a bunch of you know matches scattered in the wind. But when you see how they have their lead-out train dialed, and then the confidence that Demar has in those guys, and obviously winning races really really helps team morale. I really have to sit back and just give a thumbs up to that team. 
Definitely, they have developed in the right way, in the right direction. Um, I couldn't agree more. Winning, you know, stages, Arnold Mar, his lead-out train, worked pretty hard. And they were not shy to commit early. Sometimes you would see him, like, being all over the peloton and, like, they try to find each other in the last 10, 15 kilometers. But in this year's Giro, they were committed to go, nope, we believe in Arno, and we're going to go, if necessary, we're going to go 100 kilometers and right tempo for him. Yeah, and then, you know, getting into to week two, um, a lot of what I was thinking was, man, there's a lot of breakaways that are making it to the line these days. And maybe that is the difference between the Giro and the Tour, not saying anything negative because those guys still had to go out there and, and put it in, but the tactics seem to be different. But week two, for me, um, with the, the finish up blockhouse, that's where I expected the Ineos Grenadiers just absolutely crushing knockout punch to come. And it didn't come. And, you know, there was a, you know, Carapaz was aggressive. Richie Port was amazing. You know, the team really worked hard. But when he wasn't able to make that selection, I remember Chris Froome always saying that like that first uphill mountain day, um, although they did have one in, in Etna, but that was a little bit, you know, kind of early. This, this just kind of panned out and kind of, I don't know, set off a, a little bit of a flare for me that Karpas isn't really as good as we thought he would be. And ironically, on this stage, um, Jai Hindley actually came back to that group of three guys and, and won. And right then and there, I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. This kid is, you know, riding with his head and then is able to take advantage of a situation and win a stage. And right then and there, takes a lot of pressure off. And obviously, he would go on to much bigger and, and better things. But he just never made a mistake. Like, if he couldn't follow, which was just Blockhouse, maybe, you know, the only time he couldn't. And he was able to play off Carpas after that. And... Man, what a difference of a guy that, you know, can be in second place versus the, the guy who's in the pink jersey or the leader's jersey, right? The guy in the lead has a lot more media attention, a lot more pressure. He has a lot more things to do after the race. And Jai was just sitting there, man, like just lurking in the, in the shadows, always ready to respond. And I wonder how much energy he was able to save by just kind of you know, being second fiddle to, to Carpass that whole time. Well, I believe they already had a lot of pressure and uh, pressure off their shoulders with two stage wins, Leonard Kemner and Jay Hindley. Plus, for a long time, they could still play three cards. At the beginning, Leonard Kemner, before he fall further back, but he still had the other German, Emanuel Buchmann. And for a long time, they also had... Um, uh, uh, Kelderman there. So they had three cards to play for a while. They had all three of them in the top 10, so they could share the pressure. Team Spirit was high. The team Bohans Grohe was strong, committed. They did, um, they did come up with a pretty good plan for every stage and they made the plan work in reality as well. So he also had a strong team, but yes, definitely it helped him to win that stage, gain confidence, but then sort of like go back a little bit and go, hey, Ineos, if you guys want to win, it's your job. You are in the leader's jersey. So definitely it did help him and the team to hold back a little bit and save energy. I mean, obviously in that, that second week, probably the biggest story was Gourmet. Um, 
you know, he was up there fighting with those guys for a stage win. It didn't look like it was going to come. And then boom, he did one of the most impressive sprints beating no one, none other than Matteo Vanderpool. And man, I could not have been happier. I mean, it was, it was like history, right? Like this is, this is something that we're going to remember for a long time. And the way that he won it, and even more impressive, the way that Vanderpool responded to getting beaten. And let's face it, Vanderpool does not get beaten. But when, when I saw that photo of him putting his thumb up, congratulating him you know, before he even won, I was like, man, cycling needs more of that. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Matteo Vanderpool, but like that just absolutely cemented my admiration for the guy because that was that was massive. You know, you see a lot of guys banging their hand on the bar and stuff like that. And you wonder, you know, did they get impeded in the sprint? Nope. He was given massive, massive respect to Gourmet, and I love that. Well, I guess um, it's due to the fact that you already won a stage and took the leader's jersey, then lost the leader's jersey, Matthew van der Poel. And I strongly believe on that day he felt nobody can beat me. I'm strong and I'm going to win again. And he felt if somebody on a good day can beat me, he's got to be at least a superstar. So that's why I think he went, everything worked out perfect for me. The team worked for me. And Matthew van der Poel thought my team worked for me. I felt as good as I ever could. And I still got beaten. So the winner deserves a thumbs up. And yes, it was pretty good to see. And I, I'm going to repeat myself. Biniam Grimet is a superstar in the making. Yeah, I, I think he's made already, my friend. I mean, winning a stage of the Giro and Gent Wevelgem. Um, exciting stuff. Exciting stuff. And, you know, another shout out is just that team. You know, Intermarche, Wanty Goubert, they punched so far above their weight throughout. And Grimet definitely started that ball rolling and they just kept impressing but that that was hard to watch um the prosecco cork incident here's this kid making history we're all just sitting there like cheering and all of a sudden he just gets slammed in the eye with with the cork um i don't think i've ever seen that happen i know there's been some near misses if you will but Man, the emotion that he and his team must have gone through in that 15 to 20 minutes from winning the stage to actually the guy having to go to the hospital and not being able to start the next day. I mean, this sport, when you think you've seen it all, something like that happens. Correct. It's, uh, it's unheard of that that happened. You might hit a spectator or a teammate or whatever, the ceiling with that cork, but... Your own eye, oh, and it, you could immediately see that that is painful. That is it's not an easy one. And as far as I know, um, he had to take time away from the bike for a very, very long time. Yeah, you got to be careful. Um, you know, blurry vision. I remember um, Marcel Voost back in the day, you know, great sprinter, had an accident, um, wasn't ever able to, to come back to the To, to that level just because of uh, an eye injury. Um, the disappointment for me in, in week two was after that blazing start, uh, Simon Yates just had a bad day. And he normally has a bad day, but we've watched him in the Giro before, and normally that's towards the end of the race. He lost a lot of time, and it was like, well, that's that. 
But then towards the end of that second week, he he just stuck it out and was able to win stage 14. Uh, Carpas finally taking over the pink from from Lopez. But, um, you know, that just shows the the fortitude. I mean, he went into this race with the goal of winning, uh, started off with that great time trial victory, suffered and then came back and, and won a mountain stage. Um, Mega respect because that that had to have been tough, um, but then with Roman Bardet having to stop, that was that was kind of a bummer to me because he looked like he was riding super super well, and um, man, this sport is hard enough. And then throw in everything else, you know, getting sick on stage fourteen and not being able to um, to finish. It was. It was kind of a bummer, you know. That's that started some of the big names uh, dropping off the radar. And I remember when I was uh, commentating on the race, just uh, that day or the day before, I, I said, "Hey, Roman Bardet has probably never ever been within ten or fifteen seconds of the leader's jersey in a Grand Tour in his entire career, and we have to still we have the big mountains yet to come." Uh, the day before he dropped out because of illness. In my eyes, he moved himself into at least one of the two, three names I would mention for a potential win. He looked ready. He looked confident. The team was working well. Um, and yeah, just before he had to pull out because of illness, I said, hey, I believe he is one of the people we have to watch for the next weeks or days because he might be able to steal the show. Yep. Um, I have to agree with you there. You know, but again, moving into the final week, I was again just totally blown away that almost every stage was won by a breakaway. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I really prefer to see the guy in the pink jersey battling it out for the stage win, not just, you know, keeping his spot in, in GC. But there were some amazing rides that happened in that final week. And one of the things that I, I started to notice after a very, very slow start was Hugh Carthy um, started popping up in all the all the moves. He was very, very active. It was good to see him. Who knows if he would have gotten his conditioning maybe a little bit better or if the Giro was four weeks instead of three, he would have been moving up even more in the general classification. That is true. Um, we saw, uh, I mean, I noticed that as well and wrote it down. A lot of breakaways being successful going towards the end, towards the end. And many, many times it was actually um, Matthew van der Poel, like really putting the hammer down. I remember one day he was out after 30 seconds all by himself for like 10, 15 kilometers before somebody else joined him. He was trying it with the hammer, like just with brutal force more than once. It was good to see that he's so motivated, even though in the last week, trying it day after day. I actually wrote down that he was the rider of the Giro for me. Um, starting off in pink, winning a stage, um, fighting every day. I was actually wondering, hey, is, is he even going to finish the Tour of Italy? Like, you know, I'm, I assume he's doing the Tour de France as well. Um, and I was starting to think, man, you know, he's done a lot already. This is kind of big, but then seeing him go in those breakaways and then even just crush it in the, the final time trial as well. I think he wound up third there. I mean, the guy was, was definitely all in, in the Giro. Um, but yeah, stage 19 for me changed the race as far as, 
Ineos Grenadiers goes. When Richie Port had to stop, I was like, oh boy, that's Carpas's safety blanket. And Richie can take on so much of a workload. And it's it's so great to see because, you know, we met Richie when he was a Neo Pro at Team Saxo Bank back in 2009. And I think I loved him right away. I know you loved him right away. And to see him, you know, so much later in his career, you know, this sounds like this will be the last year of his career, being able to do what he did um, in that in that mountain support role was was awesome to see. But man, when he had to stop the race, I I could see the forest through the trees. This is going to be a little bit more difficult. But to their credit, um, Pavel Siyakov stepped up and Ben Tule really stepped up. Karpas had everything that he needed, but tell us a little bit about what you saw on on stage 20 when when Bora Hansgrohe had a plan, worked that plan to perfection, and then Jai just unleashed the fury in those final couple kilometers on that uphill mountain day. Before I go to that, let me quickly go back to stage 14. Um that went uh, in uh, Torino or just around uh, Turin. Turin, we would say in German. Torino, the Italians. Super tough circuit with two climbs, uh, each one about five kilometers long. Some of them had up to 14 or 20% max gradient. That's where Borahans Grower as a team worked to perfection already. And they did eliminate a lot of GC contenders that day. They put the entire team all in. And um, there, they, I believe, they built up the basement for the later win of Jay Hindley. Then they had time to hide, to sit back a little bit, and played their plan to perfection, perfection on stage 20. They placed Leonard Kemner on the break, which was the right rider for that move, and told him, hey, listen, whatever you do, you go, and at three and a half kilometers to go on the last climb, we need you for Jay Henley. You have to be there. No matter what happens otherwise, that is your only goal, to be there at three and a half kilometers to go. And he almost followed the plan to the meter precisely. He was there. He rode hard tempo. Jay Henley could recover a little bit on his wheel. Leonard Kemner was driving it as hard and as long as he could, putting Carapaz into a lot of difficulties. Carapaz isolated, no more teammates there. And when Jay Hindley took off, it was all over for Richard Carapaz. And the door was wide open for Jay Hindley to get the pink jersey. You could see in the difference of pedal strokes that, that Jai was definitely on a very, very good day. And Carapaz was maybe not. But did you really expect him to lose one minute and 27 seconds, whatever he lost in, in that distance? I, I surely didn't. I thought it was going to be you know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. But then when you saw Jai just diving into all those uphill switchbacks, just getting it all out, um, holy cow, that that was the race. And um, after being in the shadows and being second place and just kind of shadow boxing for so long, man, when he unleashed it, that, that, was, that was impressive. Clearly it was. Um, until then, D2... Jay Hendley and also Richard Carapaz, they sprinted for every bonus second. They were never separated by more than like a bike length. To lose suddenly a minute and a half 
comes pretty close to a total explosion. I did not expect that. But of course, Jay Hindley knew the more time I get now, today, the easier and the safer it is with tomorrow's time trial, the last stage. So he did, he did absolutely right in just pushing and pushing and pushing until he gained enough time to feel fairly safe about the last TT. Because, hey, he did not need a déjà vu with losing it in the last TT to his competitor like he did with another Ineas Grenadiers rider before with Tau Kuegen Hart. So he did absolutely perfect to work out his plan and he did work the plan as well until the finish line. So chapeau and hats off to that performance by not only the team but also by Jay Hindley. Yeah, that, that final time trial, I mean, you, you go back and you look at the first time trial and Carapaz and, and Hindley were, were quite close and they were again on this one. So it must have been such an amazing feeling to, to succeed where he ultimately failed in 2020. And I think that's just going to be that little switch that allows him to continue to grow. I mean... He's not that old. What is he, 20, 26, 27 years old? He's kind of coming into his prime. Um, but man, I can't imagine the emotions that were going through his mind. I mean, he knew he had a massive buffer, but um, good for him. I mean, the way that he showed himself during the race, the way that he accepted winning at the end I thought was was very very gracious and you're absolutely right you hit it from from right at the start of the podcast this is the first Australian to win the Giro d'Italia um that's big that's big and that's going to open up some more opportunities for for other riders um a lot of teams showed themselves you know super well but Bora Hansgrohe give me a little bit of a backstory you know when they started they hired Sagan and Sagan had some success and now Sagan is gone and they win a grand tour the Giro what are they doing right there because they they are pinging on on many levels well I believe uh, at first it was relatively easy I mean come on they hired Sagan at, at his prime if you got Sagan in the team, you, you don't even need any teammates. Sagan is just doing the show by himself. Then slowly Peter got a little older. Um, he, um, you know, um, had a COVID uh, one year. It took some time to come back. So they had to change plans. And they figured, okay, let's see what we can do to um, perform on the Grand Tours. They had some... Uh, some good results at some of the classics with Schachmann, for example, uh, Niels Pollitt. Um, but they wanted to go for a big one. And now they have... I, I thought, to, to be honest, I thought they would have three or four riders. They could be three to five. With Vlasov, Jay Hindley, which, shame on me, I thought three to five would be his, his level. I thought winning a Grand Tour... I, I, you know, shame on me again. I did not see it before this Giro. They got um, Kelderman as well, uh, Buchmann. So I figured they have four people. They all can run three to five. But then it all clicked and all, everything fell into place. And um, yeah, I guess they did probably 
that famous marginal gains. More wind tunnel testing, bike positioning, training camps, explaining the riders how to train, when to train, and say, listen, whatever happens, your goal is this race or this race. So don't stress about today or next week. We want you in two months to be in shape. Give the riders like peace of mind. Hey, yeah, you're safe. Your contract is secure. We got a future as a team. Just work for this goal. Now you have a month or two months time. I believe um, they looked at every little thing, spiced every little thing up, and the combination of gaining a percent everywhere made a difference that the team seemed to be so much better and stronger. And once the ball is rolling, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, they go, hey, we won last week. Why shouldn't we win this week again or next month again? So I believe um, they got big ambitions with Vlasov in the coming Tour de France. But at this Giro, they really did prove, hey, see, we turned it around from being the Peter Sagan team into, well, basically a heavyweight contender in the Grand Tour. Whatever they're doing, they're doing something right. And I wish them even more success moving forward. And talking about success, Valverde, um, Posavivo, Nibali. These guys, 42 years old for Valverde, 39 for Posavivo, 37 for Nibali. These guys impress the heck out of me because this sport seems to be a young man's sport. And for them to ride so well and to be all three of them in the top 10, I mean, Nibali was, was fourth. I, I love to see it. And uh, who knows if we'll ever see that again, you know, three guys in the top 10 uh, of that age. But man, oh man, um, Nibali doing his last Giro after winning all three Grand Tours in, in the past, being one of the most exciting guys for over a decade now, being able to bow out in the Giro d'Italia with such a great result. Um, I'm, I was just super stoked for him. Couldn't agree more. I liked him as a rider. He seemed to be one of, or the last rider of the big hitter generation that races on instinct, that goes, hey, I like, or I want to I, I attack now because I just feel like it, you know? Um, so, yes, it was always interesting to see him out there, and he did put on the show every, uh, well, yeah, every race he participated in. So the Palmares, you know, all three uh, Grand Tours, um, and don't forget, he looked like almost a certain uh, Olympics uh, winner before he crashed out uh, in Rio de Janeiro. He looked very, very strong and very, very good there. So, yes, the guy has the Palmares. He had a share of bad luck as well. He did come back. And, yeah, I can only wish him a happy last season. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from bellenews.com, access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus, 
and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout. You'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. Now back to our Giro recap. Going to the Young Riders, because that's one of the favorite things that I like to, to pay attention to. You know, we had Lopez, 24 years old, two weeks in pink. Uh, Butrigo from Bahrain, victorious, you know, 22 years old, got a stage win and some massive experience. Um, I gonna butcher the pronunciation of this name of this name. Uh, Timon Arisman, uh, I, the 22 year old from from uh, from DSM. I believe that in his first, you know, 22 years old, I imagine this is his first Grand Tour that he he was able to get second in the final time trial. Um, man, who else did I miss that, that really popped out for, for you? I mean, another one that I wanted to mention who's, who's still quite young is Pavel Siakov. Um, he's 24 years old. He is on a great team. Uh, he had to step in for Richie Port, but I still think there's more there. Um, Obviously, being on a team like that, it must be must be tough. But uh, just wanted to give him proper respect, and and then also uh, Ben Tulet, like that guy, impressed the heck out of me as well because he had to step up when when Richie went out as well, and and also did a final good time trial. So when you're seeing these young kids, you know, do a great result in the final time trial after three weeks of racing, it just tells me that uh, we're gonna we're going to know a lot more about these guys in the future. Uh, definitely. Maybe another good name would be the winner of um, stage 20, I believe. Yes, Alejandro Covey. He is only 23 years old from Team UAE. And that was not an easy stage. Even though you're in the break, you still got to be able to hold off the chasing bunch and survive and attack your compatriots out of the breakaway. He did beat some good names there on that day. So Alessandro Covey. Italian rider UAE is a pretty good rider as well. Only 23 years old. So, yep, this year we see, or the last two years, I believe, already, we see a whole bunch of very, very young riders really becoming big and strong figures in international cycling. Yeah, it was a real bummer to see Joao Almeida have to stop. Um, it looked like he was going to be fighting for a top GC spot. And um, we wish him the best of luck with his recovery from, from COVID. And hopefully we'll see him back on the, on the circuit soon. Um, yeah, the, the points classification, I mean, DeMar, very, 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 very strong. Three stage wins, had to suffer through the mountains. Um, I'm always impressed when, when those guys, when they, you know, have won their stages and they look at the race book and I think it was just like one stage that would could possibly be a sprint finish, which turned out to be won by the breakaway anyway. I think that was stage 18. Um, that these guys suck it up and finish, but that's how important that, that Jersey competition is, that point Jersey competition is. And like I said before, you know, they're, they're looking very, very professional out there and um, be exciting to see what, what the sprinter game looks like later in the summer. Definitely it is. And I believe Arnold Demar still 
He still has a few things he wants to settle with the Tour de France. I believe it's a while ago since he won a stage there. So he is definitely uh, back with a vengeance uh, and wants to win at least another stage. Um, all the motivation he needs, he just gained here, I believe. Um, talking about the riders, they had to go home. What do we think, Bobby, you and me? Should Bade go to the Tour? Will he go to the Tour? Almeida, will he be in the Tour team? Um, or Simon Yates, will he be at the Tour? Should he go to the Tour? Can he keep the form or rebuild it by then? What's your thoughts on that? Well, that's a tough one. I always, you know, was under the impression that, you know, if you go all in for the Giro, it's going to be kind of hard to recover and relight the, relight the fire for the tour, but the tour is the tour. You know, we know that that's, it's the number one sporting event on our calendar. Um, suck it up, Buttercup. You know, if, I think Bardet should go if he's, if he's healthy. Um, hope, hopefully the same for Joao and maybe give them a little bit more um, objectives because if, when you're focusing on the Giro and then you only, you don't finish it, there's always that kind of underlying, like, I need, I need to do something. I need to get a result. Um, but the tour, man, this, this sport is so crazy now and so defined that I think once you have the Giro on your race program, um, it's going to be hard to to get into the tour team as well. I agree. Um, I believe in this uh, modern cycling. It is, in my eyes, <clears throat> impossible to peak at the Giro and peak at the tour again. Different story for the Tour and the Vuelta. But being top three in the Giro, all in, preparing two months for it, and then going to the Tour, I did not see that in the last 10, 15 years. I don't think it's it's possible. The timing is just not right. It might be okay for Joao Almeida, because he might be the super domestic for Tadej Pogacar. Um, maybe it's also okay for Bardet. He can still win a stage. He's a classy rider. He's clever. He's a very good climber. He might catch a breakaway one day in a tour and win a stage. But maybe not for GC because you prepared, you peaked, you were at race weight and you cannot repeat it like basically a month after at the Tour de France. So maybe not for GC, but both of them could win a stage, I believe. And the mountains classification, I think that's worth uh, mentioning as well. Uh, Cone Bauman from Jumbo Visma dominated that. He won a stage. Um, he's 28 years old. Like I said, I didn't really know who he was uh, prior to the race, but just another great Dutch rider um, that, that showed himself very well. And I think that's what the Giro is all about, is you, you got to come out with something. And, man, the way he dominated that, that uh, classification was, was impressive. And finally, I mean, with the teams, you know, is winning the team classification like Bahrain Victorious did, is that a goal that certain teams go to, you know, go with to, to the Giro? Or is that just kind of like, hey, you know, whatever happens, happens? I believe almost no team goes into a grand tour with the goal of the team competition. But once you have it and you see, hey, we got 10 minutes there at once on second uh, team, we focus on it. Bahrain Victorious, they had um, Peo Bilbao well placed in the GC and of course Mikel Landa finishing third. 
they had a stage win. So they had something else. But I believe they saw, okay, with Mikel Landa, we can probably not win with the Finnish TT. We cannot win the GC here on this race. So let's take the team's competition and we all can be up on the podium. So yes, I believe halfway through the race, it did become an objective for them. Because come on, it's a lovely way to finish a race. All of your teammates are up on the highest spot on this extra large podium. The entire team is there. It's a really good feeling of accomplishment um, for a team to have everybody up there. So I believe in the second half of the Giro, they did actually put some focus on that. Well, we had 12 teams win stages. Six of those teams won multiple stages. The thing that really jumped out at me was Ineos Grenadier. Okay, they finished second overall in, in the race, but they, they didn't win a stage. Um, so you see the tactics of how teams are put together. You know, they were all in for Carapaz, right? These other teams, you know, they were still looking after Jai, but they were sending guys up, you know, Bora Hansgrohe was sending guys up the road and, and won a stage. What, what's the deal there? Do you agree? Because I have to say overall, especially in the first two weeks when, you know, the road turned up and Ineos, especially Richie, just kind of dialed it up and no differences were being made. I, I was starting to question their their tactics. And I know the sport has changed and the level at the top is, you know, so very similar um, where the diff big differences maybe can't be made. But what was your overall opinion of a world super team that had such an amazing spring um, coming away from a Grand Tour with not only not the overall victory like they wanted, but also no stage wins? Do they have to relook their their tactics or, you know, did it just not work this time for the for the big enchilada there at the end? I'm so happy you brought that up. Um it is difficult to comment on this because, yes, they were leading the Giritalia for a few days and they only lost it on the very last day or second last day. So it's not that we can say they had a terrible Giro. They, they were good. They were in control of it. They just, Carapaz missed just a little bit on that uh, aggressive tactics of Bora Hans Grohe on the second last day. But yes, they did not win a stage. So I would say it was a normal Giro Italia for them uh, or an average one. Not bad, but not exceptional. It was good, solid. They were in control, but they were missing the last little bit. And the shocking part is they haven't met yet Pogaccia and Roglic. So there's even better riders at the Tour de France waiting for them. So yes, they probably should be a little bit nervous. Talking about that, coming back to the second bigger team, Jumbo Visma, they had a former Giro Italia winner in the team who did not fulfill his desire with um, Tom Dumoulin. And a young Cohn Baumann basically single-handedly saved the entire team from a frustrating Giro Italia. He won two stages and the mountains jersey. If you take that away from Jumbo Visma, for being one of the powerhouses of modern cycling, there's not so much left. So they were lucky they had Cohn Baumanns. He was the tree hiding the forest 
as well for that team. So they also might need to do some fine tuning going into the tour. Well, it's in the books. We got to find something else to do for the next couple of weeks before the Tour de France starts. But again, hats off to Jai Hindley, the whole Bora Hansgrohe team. You're a Giro d'Italia winner, and that's got to feel darn good. Also from my side, hats off, congratulations, my deepest respect. You played your cards well. You were strong, clever, smart, classy. You had it all, and all the best for the future for you, Jay Hindley. Well, that's all our time for this special episode. And our next episode with 4K world record holder Ashton Lambie is out this Friday. Thanks everyone for listening. Please give us a five-star review and don't forget to share us with your friends. The show was a Value News production in association with Chuck Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mossa. Thanks everyone for listening. Please give us a five-star review and don't forget to share us with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.